Reading, short and deep. Hi, this is Jesse. And Eric. And today we're reading short and deep, The Library of Babel by Jorge Luis Borges. Eric, uh, I've been a big fan of Borges for a while. Um, why did you want to read this story? I, I think that Borges is one of the two greatest short story writers of the 20th century. Um, the other one, in, in my estimation, being Kafka. Mm. Uh, this obviously has to do with my own views of things. Uh, but one of the things that I find so compelling about uh, both of those writers is that what we call their short stories, uh, and this is even more so the case for Borges than for Kafka, really uh, require an attentive reader to consider important philosophical issues, issues that we ordinarily don't think of on a daily basis. But what Borges does is create fantastic environments or posit opening positions, backgrounds for the stories, essays, whatever they may be, um, in which philosophic questions are inevitable. And this particular story, The Library of Babel, um, is by its name uh, something that we would expect could raise uh, a philosophic question. Um, and I, I, I'd be happy to talk about that, too. But I, I think there are at least a couple of things that maybe we ought to make clear first. Um, for instance, um, do we have the right to read short and deep? It's the deep mm -hmm. that I'm worried about. When we know that we are discussing an English language text, not the original Spanish text? I would say we do, at least in this case, because um, Borges was, uh, he was this English speaker. He was not his first language, but he was well familiar with it. He read in English and he had books read to him in English. He was aware of many of the translations. I'm not 100% sure he was aware of this one, but I read a bit of his stuff uh, in translation, of obviously, and I think that this is a pretty good translation. Actually, um, I had the uh, the pleasure and honor of meeting Senor Borges uh, a number of times, and uh, it happens that uh, although English wasn't his first language, as you say, he actually taught Middle English at one point at the University of Texas, and he, mm -hmm. he did it in English. So uh, his English is superb. Uh, I heard him once asked, um, how is it, sir, that, um, that you are so widely admired around the world? Um, this was a time at which Spanish language literature was not very widely read. And he said, because I have been blessed with translators who make my work even better than I had. Huh. Um, a very humble man. I don't believe that they're better since I've read this both in Spanish and in English. But, but still, um, I'm with you on this. I think we can trust this one. Uh, second question, I guess, uh, is uh, 
what do we make of this title? It is one of the reasons that I like this particular story is that I see in it, at least, and from the title forward, references beyond the work itself that make it quite compelling. Um, Babel is uh, a Bible story about <laughs> how humanity is inherently sundered as a consequence of its own overweening pride trying to reach to heaven, uh, getting a building a tower so high that it can get to heaven, um, and God punishes humanity by fo foisting mutually unintelligible languages on humanity so that we can't, in fact, get together and, and challenge God. That's, that's the Tower of Babel. Um, but this is the Library of Babel. Mm-hmm which suggests um, a domain, I mean, you don't have a library um, in something that's transitory. It suggests either Babel as a, as a domain or maybe the tower still exists or something. So this would be a library that would somehow bring together all possible languages. And it seems to me that having a story that is called the Library of Babel might be itself a way of labeling a narrative or a discourse that is intended to be something that is equally understandable to all people of all languages. So the, the work of a piece of writing called the Library of Babel might be very different from the work of something called Eloise's First Kiss, or Rocket to the Stars. I mean, there's something about this title that makes one ask, what's this thing trying to do? Mm -hmm. Definitely. It also starts with a um, an epigram. Is that what they're called? Epigraph? <laughs> epigraph. Epigraph um, from a book that I was not familiar with, but is a real book. Sometimes with Borges, they're real. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're real, but that quotation is not in that book, you know. Um, and uh, I, in reading about that book, I think um, there's a strong connection with it. But I, I, maybe I'll read that little epigraph. <laughs> <laughs> uh, by this art, you may contemplate the variation of the 23 letters. Uh, and that's from The Anatomy of Melancholy, Part 2, Section 2. Mem for mem maybe memory <laughs> I don't know but it's a 17th century work about supposedly a uh, a textbook or a diagnostic manual for uh, the feeling of melancholy but it encompasses basically every century 17th century idea and um science and has very little to do with uh, melancholy other than it as a perhaps reading it as a cure for melancholy. Yeah, it, this is uh, one of those things that I was required to uh, actually read, the Richard Burton's The Anatomy of Melancholy in graduate school. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't uh, particularly care for it, but the, the style was interesting. It is philosophical. Um, I don't remember it in detail, I have to acknowledge. I graduated a long time ago and haven't returned to this particular book 
much, but I did call up an electronic copy of it, and as far as I can tell, the quotation that we have in the epigraph is not, in fact, from the book. <laughs> That'll tell you. Yep. One of the giveaways is this, that the English alphabet, even in the 17th century, had 26 letters. Mm. And this epigraph refers to the 23 letters. Um, there is no K and there is no W um, in uh, the Spanish alphabet, um, depending upon how you like to, to count. Um, you can make the Spanish alphabet out to be 23 letters. So uh, it may be that, that Borges is appropriating the notion of alphabet, of ciphers which are themselves meaningless, but which collectively, by following a set of rules, can convey meaning. Uh, he's appropriating that for an epigraph that he makes up which is an interesting self-reflexive move because what he's saying is I've now created meaning. In fact, if you had read a compendium of all the sciences, as you so well put it, Jesse, if you'd read a compendium of all sciences, if you hadn't found this epigraph, it's just because the compendium wasn't long enough because this epigraph is the truth about how letters work and the truth is the truth and you'll find it everywhere. It's infinite which is what this story or whatever this thing is, is about. Yeah. Maybe we should uh, read that first paragraph and see what this world is made up of. Yeah, that's a great idea. The, uh, the story begins with someone. I mean, it just begins after the epigraph. Um, by this art, you may contemplate the variation of the 23 letters, the anatomy of melancholy. The universe, which others call the library is composed of an indefinite, perhaps an infinite number of hexagonal galleries with enormous ventilation shafts in the middle encircled by very low railings. From any hexagon, the upper or lower stories are visible interminably. The distribution of the galleries is invariable. 20 shelves, five long shelves per side, cover all sides except two. Their height, which is that of each floor, scarcely exceeds that of an average librarian. One of the free sides gives upon a narrow entranceway, entranceway, which leads to another gallery, identical to the first and to all the others. To the left and to the right of the entranceway are two miniature rooms, one standing room for sleeping, the other the satisfaction of fecal necessities. Through this section passes the spiral staircase, which plunges down into the abyss and rises up to the heights. In the entranceway hangs a mirror, which faithfully duplicates appearances. People are in the habit of inferring from this mirror that the library is not infinite. If it really were, why this illusory duplication? I prefer to dream that the polished surfaces feign and promise infinity. So we don't know who this person is. Clearly, this is not a place in our world. Um, we know what he seems to believe um, about the replication and duplication and infinity. But if we think about what he says, he's not necessarily a trustworthy narrator. That is, if you were to live in an environment that is in total just what we've heard, um, 
you would have no way of knowing if the face that you saw in the mirror was a faithful duplication of your own face, uh, right? Because you'd never have anything else to, to judge it by, a photograph or a sketch. Or, I mean, th this is it. Um, and also, we know that he wants the library to be infinite. I prefer to dream that the polished surfaces feign and promise infinity, which you could only feign infinity if it weren't infinite. So suddenly this description of an endless beehive, you know, hexagonal after hexagonal, um, maybe it's not infinite. Maybe it is in fact infinitesimal. It's just an idea in the mind of the speaker. And so the story then, the, the discourse, goes through a discussion about what people have thought about the library and the activity of the librarians who are the only people we ever meet, uh, and so on. And it goes through all kinds of variations, which are in each worth consideration. I mean, philosophical variations. And each comes in the penultimate part of the, the, the discourse to talk about a couple of premises that a logician has come up with about the replicability and the infinitude of the, uh, of the library and the, the books that are on it. There's the notion that all possible things that could ever be written exist on these books. And of course, the only problem is finding the book. How would you know if any given book had nothing but meaningful things in it? and another nothing but gibberish, since you have no way to know what language is except through language, the so-called hermeneutic uh, circle. Uh, that philosophical problem runs through this, uh, this story. But he ends, our speaker, by saying, I dare insinuate the following solution to this ancient problem, the problem of how you reconcile the things that we've been able to infer about the library. I dare insinuate the following solution to this ancient problem. The library is limitless and periodic. If an eternal voyager were to traverse it in any direction, he would find after many centuries that the same volumes are repeated in the same disorder, which repeated would constitute an order, order itself. My solitude rejoices in this elegant hope. So what, what our narrator seems to be saying, our speaker seems to be saying is, if I can go up one ontological level, I can find disorder here, but order in the disorder. And that means I can have an ordered universe. In the course of this discourse, he's talking about the library as a creation of God which appropriate given the title of the uh, library of Babel. Um, he wants there to be order. He, in a sense, wants to be an acolyte of the religion, which is based on the reality of this library. But although that's the end of the body of the text, someone adds a footnote. And <laughs> we can't help but think that the footnote is added by the speaker himself, because he's a librarian, as, by the way, was Borges. He was the head librarian of the National Library of Argentina. And here is the footnote. After he's just said that his solitude rejoices in the hope that there is a higher level order, which is the order, the footnote says, Letizia Alvarez de Toledo 
has observed that the vast library is useless. Strictly speaking, one single volume should suffice. A single volume of ordinary format printed in nine or ten point uh, type body and consisting of an infinite number of infinitely thin pages. At the beginning of the 17th century, which of course is when the Anatomy of Melancholy was written, at the beginning of the 17th century, Cavalieri said that any solid body is the superposition of an infinite number of planes. This silky vademecum guide would scarcely be handy, that is, useful to the hands, physically uh, usable. Why, colon, each apparent leaf of the book would divide into other analogous leaves. The inconceivable central leaf would have no reverse. So the actual last sentence of this discourse is the inconceivable central leaf would have no reverse. This is perfect Borges. <laughs> he is getting us to conceive of something which by definition is inconceivable. Mm-hmm. It's an oxymoron which nonetheless exists. Let me, let me talk for a, a second about oxymorons. Um, uh, bittersweetness, right? Um, mm-hmm. We know what it means even though it can't be right. Um, I was, uh, in a bus one day and the bus got stopped behind, um, two delivery trucks that were double parked, one on either side of the street and a car could navigate between them around them, but the bus was too long. A bus driver came out, excuse me, a truck driver came out, saw what was going on. And instead of moving his truck back a bit so that the truck, the bus could get through, he just took another load off the truck to deliver to the delivery he was making to a grocery store. When the bus driver saw what he was doing, he said aloud, I happened to be sitting in the front seat near the bus driver. He said, God damn truck drivers. Each one is stupider than the other. (laughs) (laughs) The logic of that is impossible, (laughs) but I knew exactly what he meant. Exactly. And that's what's going on here. The inconceivable central leaf had no reverse. Well, of course, that's right. If you get to the central leaf, the one that does that you can't split open, then it has no reverse. But of course, since by definition, every everything has its next more infinitesimal plane, this is a version of Zeno's paradox, um, we can't get it. So it's inconceivable. And yet, once we conceive it, we find out that it's unlike all of the others. There is no reverse. Well, I guess what I'm coming away from is that there is no reverse for this story. This story seems to be saying it is in solitude the possibility of rejoicing with elegant hope. But the infinity of the the world we live in, remember the very first line, this the universe which others call the library is composed of an indefinite, perhaps an infinite number of blah, blah, blah. In our world, the infinity that we confront, in fact, logically speaking, allows of no order. However, because the story, the writing seems to have an order, in effect, 
I think what the story is saying is we can make order in a disordered world. Mm-hmm. God gives us the fragmentation of language in Babel. We can create a library so that, in fact, by this art, you may contemplate the variation of the 23 letters. And that is manageable enough for humanity to rejoice in an order, not that it found, but that it created. I think that's, I think that's a major part mm-hmm. the philosophic position this thing asks us to come to. I agree. There's uh, one of the things that comes up again and again in in the richness of reading this. It it isn't written to be a poem, but it feels like a poem at many points. And I think that that's perhaps just Borges' standard way of writing. (laughs) But um, one of the things that, you know, comes up right in that first line and comes up again and again. And I just, if you listen to this and you think of, think about how it makes you feel when you hear words like this, it makes the experience richer, which I think is, is a, uh, a medicine for melancholy. <laughs> um, and so these are the words that come up in the text in order, indefinite, infinite, interminable, invariable, infer, uh, next, unfathomable, inconceivable, indefatigable, inimitable, incoherent, incomprehensible, insinuate, impenetrable, incontrovertible. Wow. <laughs> it goes on and on and on like this infinitesimal, irreplaceable, inverse, um, in, inquisitor. <laughs> wow. And. Uh, except for again. except for inquisitor and infer, every single one of those words that you you point us to actually works only by pointing to an absence. That is a mm-hmm. really clever approach, Jesse. Mm-hmm. He's uh, he he's doing something that you know he's outlining what something isn't and pointing in a direction, and then. In you know this is a very short story, eight pages, but it it maybe not even eight pages. It manages to create a universe that is reflective of our own, and allows us to do a lot of the work that uh, isn't in the text. And that's exactly what the text is about. So I, I myself, in reading this, I, I'm drawing pictures of what he's describing okay here's a six-sided room a hexagon that reminds me of a few things but it's not just a six-sided room because there's a a shaft going down the center of it if you go up to the barrier uh the low balustrade that's separating you from that air shaft you can see another room above and another room below there's if you look to your right or your left you see a hallway with a mirror and the closets for pooping and for eating Ah, sorry, pooping and sleeping. (laughs) By the way, you stand up while sleeping. (laughs) Yeah. So these are not humans. Um, There may be no male and female in this this universe. Um, You can go up and down. There is a direction of gravity, but there's no bottom. You dispose of your dead by throwing them off off the balcony, and they fall infinitely. 
<laughs> you could grab a book and jump off and read as you fall. But what do you eat? That's not in this story. There's light, but not enough light, right? There's so many things going on in just the setup for the universe. And then when we hear the history of this universe, it's the history of our own world, the exploration of reality. One, one of the things that I, I think is fun about the, the 23 letters or the 25 elements, right, is that they don't necessarily have to be letters. They could be um, the guanine and apennine or, you know, each of the letters of the G-A-T-T-A-C-A sort of, you know, makeup of the DNA sequence. Or they could also be elements on the periodic table. The universe is made up of X number of elements on the periodic table. This universe doesn't have to be our universe to be reflective of it. And because there's so our universe is so big in a different kind of way, in the vast interstellar distances between stars and the vast intergalactic distances between galaxies, and perhaps the vast inter-universal distances between universes, that every variation of this conversation and every other conversation and every book on our planet and every rock and pebble could be meaninglessly found in small variations on another planet in another galaxy in another universe. And when a story can do that in just a few pages and make your mind, you know, voyage in those directions, I think you've got a pretty good story. Indeed. Um, one, one of the, the things I ask myself is um, whether this is a story or not, since it seems to be a, an historical essay about the evolution of the logical exploration of a search for meaning. And there, there, are, there are no characters. Um, there is, there's no dialogue. There's just that voice that you and I have both quoted. Um, but I'd like to, to propose that one of the things that makes Borges, and again, I'd put Kafka as a, a fellow writer in this particular regard, um, at least thinking of some of his so-called parables, um, that, that there is, in fact, one character who is the, the speaker. And that what we come to understand in the course of this, this writing, this is that the speaker is troubled. Um, the universe, which others call the library, he, he feels himself not at ease with others. He needs to come to have an understanding of what the universe might be. And he says at the end of that first paragraph, I prefer to dream that the polished surfaces, that's of the mirrors that you and I've mentioned, feign and promise infinity. He wants something that isn't bounded. He wants, I think, um, to make a parallel. He wants something in the same way that most human beings seem to wish to believe in an afterlife. Mm -hmm. um, he wants there to be an order, but an order that sustains the possibility of the infinity of the consciousness, if you like, of the soul. So he works his way, as a good librarian should, through 
uh, a physical description. He describes the objects, the way the books look. He describes the way the books seem to be composed. Um, he leaves out where they come from, by the way. He talks about hypotheses about what books might exist. Um, he tries to give us then uh, the, the philosophical and logical imaginings about why the books are as they are and what might be the books yet unexamined. And then he ends, as I've quoted, with um, this notion that the, it is limitless and yet periodic. My solitude rejoices in this elegant hope. So what this whole thing is about, it's like a lyric poem. Mm -hmm. We hear the man trying to use the tools of his trade. Logic, you know, ordering things, controlling knowledge. That's what a librarian does. Gives us access to it. They put books where they belong. They get them out for us when we need them. He wants to be able to hope that his thinking this through validates the solution to the ancient problem of the meaning of the library and its existence, how it exists. And he says, ah, it is limitless and periodic. My solitude rejoices in this elegant hope. And immediately... He adds that footnote to suggest that anything that we would think about in this regard is impossible. The whole library is useless. And if we could come up with the one volume that fit the same philosophical requirements, it would in fact be inconceivable. There's no way to go forward. This is a fellow who is trapped in his own desire to have a world better than the one that he is incapable of not acknowledging. He realizes there is no evidence for the order that he wants. And so while he says, I rejoice in this hope, he has no choice being true to himself, but to suggest that perhaps the hope is invalid. One could then think of this story allegorically in many, many ways. But one of the ways one could think of it in is to say, so there is no God. All of those elegant hopes that humanity constructs are false. But if, if that is the sad, bittersweetness of the life of this oxymoronic librarian, the author behind him, behind the creation of this narrator character, has in fact created a piece of writing called the Library of Babel that has managed to capture that oxymoronic meaning and convey an experience to us so that although it is illogically uh, illogical, we know what it means. And so, yes, there may be no God, but there can be authors. Hmm. It's the consolation of philosophy. Indeed. The consolation of the library. Yeah. Mm hmm I think we could go a little deeper on this. I I'm I'm a big fan of Borges, but Borges apparently was a fan of Lovecraft's. Have you uh heard about this? I did not know that. He was. Uh, there is a story he wrote, um, that is set in Texas, I guess, at the time when he was uh, a, uh, he was a professor there, and 
it's uh, about a man who builds a house and then deconstructs the house and a visitor who trying to escape their rain goes inside is confronted by a monstrous experience and it's the the story is dedicated to lovecraft what's the um, name of that one um i'm trying to remember now i think it's called our are such th- beasts real or something to that effect but hmm. um when i was reading the library of babel this time though I was reminded of another story by Lovecraft, which came out 20 years prior. Um, this this story was first published in 1956, and um, oh in, no, I, I think it's 41 in the original Spanish. Oh, you may be right. You may be right. It, in any case, it came out prior to, um, uh, sorry, a subsequent to 1936 when a story by Lovecraft was published called *The Shadow Out of Time*. Shadow Out of Time is a very interesting story in that it's the experience of a man who is um, relating the experience after having acted very strangely for about 20 years. Um, He was a professor at a university, and then suddenly he just couldn't be a professor anymore because he lost all his his skills. Um, But he had all sorts of other strange skills, and he ended up becoming a professor of a completely different subject. Um, but his family disowned him, all except for one one of his children. And then, after 20 years of this experience, um, he returns to his normal personality and continues the lecture he was giving when he suddenly changed. Mm-hmm. And and then he starts having dreams about this time, uh, the 20-year gap in his memory. And in those dreams, he tells of a library which i i will read a little excerpt from here if you don't mind i wish you would he says meanwhile in my dreams i wrote endlessly in that history of my own age which i was preparing half voluntarily and half through the promises of increased library travel opportunities for the great races central archives The archives were in a colossal subterranean structure near the city center, which I came to know well through the frequent labors and consultations. Meant to last as long as the race and to withstand the fiercest of the Earth's convulsions, this Titan repository surpassed all other buildings in the massive mountain-like firmness of its construction. The records, written or printed on great sheets of curiously tenacious cellulose fabric were bound into books that opened from the top and were kept in individual cases of strange, extremely light, rustless metal of grayish hue, decorated with mathematical designs and bearing the title of the great race's curvilinear curvilinear hieroglyphics. These cases were stored in tiers of of the rectangular vaults like closed lock shelves wrought of the same rustless material and fastened by knobs with intricate turnings. My own history was assigned a specific place in the vaults of the lowest of the vertebrae level, the section devoted to the culture of mankind and the furry and reptilian races Ah. immediately preceding it in a terrestrial dominance. So what he's discovered in these dreams is that he has been transported to a library, uh, perhaps in a personality swap, with one of the librarians of this great race to a time in Earth's history when a group of creatures in the distant past are reconstructing the future of the Earth in 
libraries by having human beings and all the other species that will inhabit the earth be transported and transpose everything about their culture into these books. Wow. They themselves are all dead, but the library still has to be built. <laughs> so it's an amazing, crazy story and uh, much longer than, than the one we've read today. But I, I, I know that Borges read uh, Lovecraft and had it read to him. So I can't, I can't imagine he hadn't read this one. I just love that image. I think you've picked a, a perfect passage from the Lovecraft to to suggest a connection with with this Borges story. Um, that that Lovecraft story itself could be connected with a story called Wakefield by Hawthorne, mm. in which uh, a perfectly ordinary fellow. Uh, leaves home one day, uh, you know, just for ordinary activities, go to work, whatever. Um, this is the middle of the 19th century when Hawthorne writes this. Um, and for a reason that is never explained, he takes up lodgings on another street. He just doesn't come home. And uh, his wife, you know, after a while realizes this and she goes on and she figures out a way to survive and raise their children. And uh, Wakefield, sometimes of a night, stands across the street and looks in through the window to see how his family is faring. Or well, I don't know why, actually. He observes them. At the end of 20 years, he knocks on the door. And the wife opens it. And he enters. And presumably, somehow, they pick up life again. Um, now Hawthorne obviously was well known to Lovecraft mm -hmm. and Hawthorne in fact I would not have connected that story although Hawthorne was well known to Borges as well to Borges but because you've given us a, a link in between we can see that that great parable writer of American 19th century fiction Hawthorne can be seen as connecting to Borges Mm -hmm. And I, I mention this because you've given me an idea about Borges' story I had not had before. That we could see this piece as just one of those volumes in the Library of Babel. Because in some sense, it does represent all of literature. Mm -hmm. It is, in fact, that book at the end in the footnote <laughs> right um, in in developing the structure i i tried to see what other people had done i drew my own drawing of of what i think the rooms look like and such and how the structure would work when i looked online i i seem to have discovered that nobody has got it right they seem to you you mentioned it as a honeycomb and it is a honeycomb in the sense that they are, you know, hexagonal. But the if we imagine that the two uh, walls that do not bear books, but which both have entranceways to uh, the ro little rooms with the stairways up and down, we can actually visualize this as not uh, a honeycomb stretching off in uh, an X and Y axis, but only in one direction, 
uh, left and right. And when he describes in the story um, the languages of the other people in the galleries, one of the things he says that I thought was very funny is, um, <laughs> is that he called the languages uh, to the right dialectical, <laughs> which, of course, is a double meaning, right? Right. But um, the ones that are 90 stories up are incomprehensible. And so we have the idea of the library of uh, the the Tower of Babel built into the Library of Babel. But we also get the sense that it doesn't stretch infinitely in all directions, but rather only in the form of a piece of paper. It goes up and it goes left and it goes right, but it has a finite thinness, but within that finite thinness, just as in that last footnote suggests, there is an infinite number of books. And wow. there is no reverse to it. Yeah, I had never thought of it that way. Um, and I'm not saying you're wrong. But um, we know that, that because it's a hexagonal, we know that um, each of the sides has the same length. Mm -hmm. What we don't know is the length of the, um, the narrow entranceway that comes off one side or another. Um, if those narrow entranceways are long, that is, if it's a long distance to connect, um, think of a think of a honeycomb. If we mm -hmm. were to 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 explode in a plane, the uh, the hexagons, it would be possible to extend that honeycomb infinitely in the x y axis. Mm -hmm. And since we're told that there are spiral staircases going up and down, it's extensible in the z-axis as well. So by having it extending infinitely in x, y, and z axes, um, I've always thought of it as being like the idea of an infinite universe rather than an infinite plane. It, it is an infinite universe in at least one respect, in its vertical and its horizontal. But in the in the in the Z, it, it would have to depend on on a, a number of things. We we don't we don't know those numbers. Uh, we don't know those distances. We do know that they are um, uh, mirrored, though. On the one side is a closet for pooping, and the other side there's a closet for sleeping. Right. Um, he he says he was born uh, in one of the galleries, that the galleries have chieftains. We don't really know much. We don't know how tall they are, except they're as tall as the shelves. Right. There's so many things we don't know. But one of the possibilities that I, I think is really fun, that's hinted at in this story as well, um, comes up in uh, another story, The Garden of Forking Paths, um, which I'm sure you're familiar with. I am. That has a uh, at its center <laughs> a mystery about a labyrinth and a book, a novel and a book. Uh, sorry, a, a, a labyrinth and a book, and maybe they're the same thing. I but think we book, should. I think we should save this for a whole other discussion. That's a great story. Uh, I agree, 
But I, I want to read from the quote I found in this story, The Library of Babel. Okay. Um, um, so, the idealists argue that the hexagonal halls are a necessary form of absolute space, or at least of our intuition of space. They contend that a triangular or pentagonal hall is inconceivable. And then, in a parenthesis, he has the mystics claim that to them, ecstasy reveals a round chamber containing a great book with a continuous back circling the walls of the room. But their testimony is suspect. Their words obscure. The cyclical book is God. <laughs> yeah. Something that's everywhere and nowhere at the same time. Mm. Uh, one other intertextual um, uh, thing to throw down the, the air shaft would be... <laughs> Uh, E.M. Forster's story, The Machine Stops, uh, which also has hexagonal rooms in a kind of similar dystopia, um, perhaps subterranean, perhaps not. Um, in this world, it doesn't seem to be subterranean, but in that world, it is. Um, and in each of those rooms, instead of uh, many books, there's just one. And instead of many librarians, there's just one. And I have no idea if Borges has read it, but I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't either. Um, well, I think one of the points about that the Library of Babel makes is that if one enters into the system of knowledge that is existence in the world, or what appears to be a more limited system of knowledge called a language, or what appears to be an even more limited system of knowledge called a library, or an even more limited system of knowledge called a book, or an even more limited system of knowledge called the Library of Babel, this particular piece, if one enters into a system of knowledge, then in some sense, one can never get out of that system of knowledge. Mm -hmm. um, as you, the end of the paragraph you're just quoting from says, the library is a sphere whose consummate center is any hexagon mm -hmm. and whose circumference is inaccessible. Another one of those negative words you mm -hmm. pointed us to. So when you're in this system of knowledge, you it's totalizing. There's no way out. Now, I mention that because whether or not Borges has read uh, the Forster, whether or not he's even read that particular Poe story, uh, that uh, Lovecraft story or the Poe story, the word hive has been used for ever since Jack Williamson's The Humanoids, uh, if not earlier. And I think that book is 1938, which puts it before this piece. Um, Ever since, uh, but it may be 48, so I, I apologize. I didn't look that up. The word hive has been used among people who read fantasy and science fiction to represent the problem of a totalizing society, the hive mind, humans mm -hmm. like insects, and so on. Of all of the social insects who are used as examples of the takeover, the pod people, uh, and so on, the, the communists, the, the underground threat, the giant ants in, uh, in them, and so on, of all of the social insects, 
the only one that human beings seem to actually admire um, on a continuing basis are the bees. Mm -hmm. And so I think that the choice of hexagon here um, may in fact be part of that system of knowledge, which is the great conversation of Western culture in which we have a sense of what social insects mean. And we would like to believe that they produce sweetness, that their order is to be admired um, as order is wanted by the speaker of this piece. But we also know that at bottom, they wipe out individuality. And it's something that cannot exist in the face of, an, of a totalizing God. So the, the virtue of the bees can be seen as capturing that bitter sweetness of what order means. So I think the hexagon may be chosen as part of that same totalizing order that the Library of Babel, the book, and the, the place it talks about are meant to represent. I like that, that you've managed to put in a, an accidental pun. The, the wax of the, of the library is bitter, but the, the content of the books are sweet. <laughs> <laughs> I, Beautiful. I, I think this is a story that uh, a plot summary cannot do justice to. And Absolutely. as much as I enjoy hearing your thinking about it, and I and I hope that's mutual, I would say that uh, the experience of a philosophical lyric poem is just different to have oneself than to hear discussed. And I hope that uh, anyone who is listening to this conversation who hasn't read the Borges will... Uh, Take some time to to try to uh, to savor this bitter sweetness. <laughs>